and welcome to the My Hormones, My Health podcast. My name's Laura and I have PMDD. Come with me as I navigate my way through the highs, the lows and the lowers of all things relating to hormones and health. I can't promise that I'll have all the answers, but at the heart of everything I do, I'll be aiming to spread a message of hope that a life with hormone or health issues can be compatible with a life of joy. Welcome to episode 11 of the My Hormones, My Health podcast. It's been a while since my last episode and the reason for that was just other things got in the way and it was really important for me to protect my mindset and my headspace at a time when life felt really stretched. So I've been taking some time to work out what my next step should be. And the good news is, and this is a totally shameless plug, that after being made redundant at the start of December, I decided to go self-employed using my six years coaching experience to work with people who have health and hormone issues or issues with self-compassion and self-worth and helping them to wade through the mental clutter and work on living their full life of hope and joy regardless. Apart from the redundancy, a huge push for me in doing this was actually the podcast. I've had conversations with such amazing people through doing this and one theme has really prevailed the shame and stigma of mental health issues and hormonal health will only dissipate if we talk more openly about them rather than hiding them away. But there are so many people who are just, they don't know where to start with that. And I believe that to fight such stigma, we, we need to start from the inside. So my new role as a coach specializing in healthy lifestyle and PMDD is to empower other people to be able to talk more about their health or learn to live with their conditions rather than fighting against them. And accepting these imperfections is just another part of them. Over the last few weeks, I've been working with people who want to learn to accept themselves more and learn real self-compassion. I've worked with people who want to work on identifying their triggers who want to live a full life in spite of their conditions. And this isn't just PMDD. I want to work with you if you know there's something holding you back, whether that be imperfect health or imperfect mindset. So you can get in touch with me if you'd like to know a little bit more about Tia Jones coaching. So on this episode, I'm joined by Imogen. And I'll be honest, I arranged for Imogen to come and chat with me to talk about her health issues that she lives with. PMDD, PCOS, diabetes and dyslexia but it actually turned into a lot more than that. I think Imogen provides great insight into invisible conditions and how they intersect with society's perceptions of what it means to be disabled. So here's our chat. Imogen thank you so much for coming on and joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. If we just start by maybe just telling us a little bit about each one of your conditions and, and how they all affect you, because I know you've you've got quite the list, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, quite a tick box. Um, it's funny because like uh, when you messaged me, you asked me like um, we could go through them individually, and it's surprising. It's not surprising at all. Maybe it's my dyslexic brain, but um, the one of the things that I find is that I have to see them overarching um i see each individual thing that i have um but they all intersect with one another um so one of the easiest ways for me to kind of describe it is actually to go through chronologically um because that gives you a good idea i guess about like how they intersect in a way um okay so let's start with diabetes um the big d um, oh no, that means something else, doesn't it? 
this not is gonna that be a great podcast. <laughs> I mean, it could be. You know, it could, you could go down a savage love, um, you know, sideline. I'm fine with that. It's good. <laughs> you've been recording for about a minute, and you've lowered the tone. Well done. <laughs> that should be my epitaph i like <laughs> one minute and you've lowered the tone the record so, so tell us more about the uh, the alternative big d then so <laughs> um i was diagnosed uh, just after my 15th birthday like two weeks after i think um and there's uh, there's a photo that i have um locked into my memory of um, me on my 15th birthday with a um big uh, tub of um, fish food by Ben and Jerry's um, which was like the last time I ate indulgently and never had to think again about numbers and fat content and um, carbohydrate content and the impact that my hormones are going to have with that carbohydrate content. Um, so I got diagnosed and um, it's an interesting disease um, type 1 diabetes because it's as type two is incredibly moralized. Um, everyone has an opinion, um, on what you're eating, how you're eating it, um, and what's affecting it. Um, curiously, very few people though know just how much everything affects your diabetes. Um, lots of people just seem to think, Oh my God, how do you cope with injections? The injections are the first thing you get over. I, I have a fear of needles. I can't bloody stand my blood being taken or anything. I faint, et cetera, et cetera. But the needles are tiny. That's not a big deal at all. What is a big deal is that every single thing I have ever eaten since I was 15, I have had to calibrate how much carbohydrate is in it. And then from that, work out the right amount of insulin and in the context of understanding how much exercise I've done that day, um, what the weather is like, if it's hot, I might hypo, so I have to sometimes draw back the insulin. On the other hand, it could be quite a very cold day and the weather can actually affect that level. Um, then there is the issue that comes into the second diagnosis of PCOS, which is that um, my hormones really affect um, my sugar levels. So I was 15 when I was diagnosed diabetes at, um, I think 23, I was trying to work out the date. So I was diagnosed with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, and that was done by, um, uh, a scan essentially, um, like a, I should also, <laughs> if I forget words, that's the dyslexia coming in mixed with a hypo. So like, you can see in real time how it affects and all intersects. But going back to the PCOS, the, um, yeah, it was done by a scan to confirm it, but I had all the sort of underlying symptoms. So for instance, my skin, I had, um, adult acne, um, uh, hair, um, like overproduction of hair. Um, I find weight very difficult to shift. Um, and it comes out of nowhere. Um, just all those kind of things and, and irregular periods and painful periods. Um, I had, a, I was very lucky. I had a random GP who just said, have you considered that this is PCOS? And I had never heard of it before. What was interesting about the diagnosis was that, um, once it was diagnosed, that was it. It was just like, yeah, here's a diagnosis for you. We have nothing to tell you other than maybe stay on the pill. <laughs> okay. Thanks. And, it was interesting because at the time, um, 
because I was um, you know, a, a young younger woman, um I really wasn't looking um to have children or anything like that. Um and it was the first time it had been put up in front of me that this might not be an option. Not to say you can't have PCOS and have children, of course you can. Um Interestingly, it comes back to the diabetes, though, because when I hit 16 and I was of age where I was going to go on the pill, um, it was given to me very early on in um, my you know, sexual habits or whatever, that like you need to be taking the pill because if you get pregnant as somebody with diabetes, um, you're far more likely to have um, a, a miscarriage. Um, and you're far more likely to have children who, um, the baby may, uh, be born with complications. Um, and that fear, and it wasn't done with fear. It's not said as with fear, but it sticks with you and you don't realize it sticks with you. You don't realize when you're in the doctor's surgery as you're being asked to go on the pill because, you know, you're, going out with someone for the first time in your life and you're having that kind of experience that, oh, by the way, you're 16. Yeah, let's think about parenthood, shall we? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, uh, all right. <laughs> like, it's not a big deal. So when this, I'd always been terrified of getting pregnant because I was like, if it happens randomly, it's, it's going to be very difficult and I might end up in hospital for months at a time to get my sugar levels under control, blah, blah, blah. Um, and when I got the PCOS diagnosis, it brought on a whole new level, which is you might not find having children an achievable outcome. Um, it's an interesting mix because you're left with this weird dichotomy between being told to be scared or something. And at the same time, well, you probably don't need to think about that anyway. Um, and all the time, these are issues that yeah, I should be aware of them, but I think there can be too much emphasis on them. I am not just a uterus to have, you know, to create children. Um, as much as I love kids, you know, I, I come with a, an education background and I did a PhD in the history of childhood. I'm fascinated by child development and I care a lot about children. Um, but it's being a mother is not necessarily the thing that, um, gives means that I understand love in a more vibrant way than anyone else. Um, so third diagnosis, <laughs> um, actually interestingly, having mentioned the PhD, the, um, the, I've never actually got a diagnosis for my dyslexia. However, I was, um, I did an MRes in history and at the end of it, I was, taken into my tutor's room um, and they were like, congratulations, you're going to be doing a PhD and you've got a distinction in the master's. Well um, I love the way I'm hyping myself up today. That, my friend, is oestrogen because on you're Monday I did not have oestrogen. <laughs> I would never have mentioned that distinction on Monday. <laughs> So this is your platform. You say whatever you want. I know I am rambling on. I did warn you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going to the office, get told, well done. You've got this distinction. Um, uh, we've been chatting. We think you should go for a dyslexia test. 
And in the same breath, the tutor said, not that I believe in it. And I'd spe- yeah, <laughs> that's the exact <laughs> pause and face that I pulled. <laughs> um, and I have fought with a, it's always been said to me that I've never been good at spelling. Um, and I read something recently about um, the one thing you can rely on with dyslexia is that you are consistently inconsistent and with your spelling um, and your reading. And because of that, and because and I think it's pretty obvious that I'm somebody who likes to verbalise and chat, I came from a very literate, heavy family, um, which meant that I was read to a lot as a kid and books were everything. And I think it disguised what was actually going on and it meant that I was consistently told you're just not trying hard enough you just need to learn this way of um, picking out the letters and it wasn't until I like when the tutor said that it confirmed to me what I had been quietly telling myself for the past 20 years in education which is that Oh, well, you know, if I've got it, it doesn't matter. And clearly I'm better than other people because I'm not going for the diagnosis. Like who needs help? I don't, aren't I great? Even though I can't spell and it's actually causing me problems in my CV and it's making me fight, take time to work things out, blah, blah, blah. Um, no, that doesn't matter. It's because I'm doing it on my own. That's what matters. Um, so it kind of solidified a really toxic attitude towards um asking for help. Um and it wasn't until I was actually midway through the PhD I realized that the PhD was actually picking up on a very uh, was that my phone? Oh, I'm ruining the <laughs> the podcast magic aren't I? <laughs> You're fine, don't worry, it's okay. Um so like I uh I can't remember what I was talking about. I know that I was talking about my dyslexia, but yes. so, yeah, I mean, you get the gist, essentially. Yeah. Um, oh, I was halfway through the PhD. There we are. And I had, um, actually, it's towards the end. And I was like having a chat with a friend um, one day who was a speech therapist. And I was talking about the fact that the PhD is about, you know, um, children having, um, it was, I'm a historian by training. Um, it's not what I'm doing currently, but um, yeah, it was about the 19th century and how children are classified into different um, uh, educational types, essentially, like what is considered a disability. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't put two and two together that this was a totally personal endeavour, essentially, because I was looking at how children get perceived as disabled um or not and um how both options are so much more to do with how you how people perceive you rather than your own experience of education um and the impact that can have on how you perceive yourself um anyway I was having this chat with this friend and um I was saying that you know like I really struggle when um uh the PhD is taking years longer like it took I was funded for four um, and it took eight um, and which tells you a lot about sort of institutionalized attitudes towards disability 
because it was like, here's some money. Yeah, it's going to run out. We're not giving you sick pay. Don't need that because, you know, you don't have disabilities. <laughs> you just have like shit and you get over it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I didn't get over it. I had two very um, heavy bouts of depression um, in in the PhD. And in talking to this friend, I realized that one of the things that really affects me is that like, you know, I have night hypos and night hypoglycemia um, has, from the diabetes um, really affects my speech um, and my ability to string sentences together which is why I cancelled this um, <laughs> this interview before, like, this one. Um, and while I'm talking to you, I'm doing that, having had two day hypos um, today. And you can hear, I'm, I'm getting there. I sound like I'm being, oh, hyperverbal and hyperarticulate, but my brain is working twice as hard to get to letters. So imagine what I'm like without hypos, because this is the... <laughs> This is the downplayed version. <laughs> but it's the downplayed version, particularly around language. Um, and I can't, like, I'm gra grasping at words. I'm literally trying, I heard somebody describe it once um, with dyslexia, that it is like trying to grab washing off a spinning washing line. And you're just like, I can see it. I just can't say it. <laughs> I can't put it down. Um, and it seems to really be affected by my hypos. So I said this to a friend, she was like, well, you know, dyslexia actually, there's a, um, I'd never really had the confirmation of it or anything like that. And she said, oh, it's interesting that you can't remember words because that's like a, that's a symptom of um, dyslexia. And I think it's something about word retrieval is the phrase that's used. Um, and it sort of suddenly started to cement, it, it, it started, not suddenly cemented, but rather sort of to undo that sort of attitude that it doesn't matter if I don't have a diagnosis or that I don't identify as dyslexic. Um, it kind of said there's more to it than just not being able to spell. Um, and it took, you know, another four years. And then around the same time that I discovered PMDD, I also found myself on Instagram um, starting to understand the neurodivergent identity um, and all the different myriad of ways that can look. Um, and it really struck a chord with me. And just the sort of the idea that like dyslexia isn't just about spelling. That is a major part of it in my case. Um, because my life has been filled with words. Um, but it's, it's got so many positives that aren't recognized. Um, and actually wouldn't have been recognized until the 19th century because it wouldn't have mattered. You, you know, the fact that I see the world, world in, I see everything all at once, essentially. Um, which means it's very difficult to necessarily break things down at the same time that means that i can see a big a bigger picture i can draw um connections that um, aren't necessarily usually connected um and i can think about 10 million things at once <laughs> um, 
which has its pros and cons. I was going to say, is that always a good thing? <laughs> Not when you've got PMDD. No. <laughs> and do you know what? I was just thinking actually, PMDD having a lot of kind of empathy for other people, but also that overthinking, add on the ability to overthink and let your brain kind of run away. And you imagine. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's a, it's not just a runaway train, it's like a, a runaway train service station. <laughs> it's like all going out at once. It's like yeah. never coming back. <laughs> all off the track. That tracks. sums it up perfectly, actually. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it doesn't sound great, but I like it. I like the, I like the concept. <laughs> well, I mean, as you know, PMDD is... Yeah, that's um, that's been the most recent identification, and the the thing that's come with that has been because re- I learned about it about five years ago. Um, no, it was more than five years ago that I learned about it. But I started looking into it and requested to see um, a gynecologist or somebody, and it took five years to see somebody. Um, this is despite the fact that um, I have been going in and out of NHS services for therapy for 10 years or so. Um, and in that time, it's it's taken me to bring it up every time. And every time I talk to my diabetes team where I'd say, two weeks before my period comes, my levels go off the charts. I can't be in control of them. And they'd be like, yeah, some women do have like uh, problems for a couple of days before the period. And it's just like, this isn't a couple of days. And, you know, it's more than just like my levels being a bit off kilter. Um, Everything's off. Like I, I try as I might, it will not be conditioned by anything. Um, so with PMDD, when I finally got the diagnosis this year or at the end of last year, it was really interesting because I was in a really good place um, at the beginning of this year, partly because I got the diagnosis and was like, wow, okay, this, this exists. This is, this isn't just me saying, because I don't know about you, but like before the diagnosis, it felt like somehow I was just tripping up every few weeks and I couldn't explain why um and it just you know you tell yourself you're just not trying hard enough or you're just being a bit chaotic or all of those things I can definitely relate to that but I also think with you in particular you were saying about um feeling like your dyslexia wasn't really a valid thing Mm. and maybe that was kind of how you were brought up so it sounds like that's definitely something that is is prevalent for you that idea of it, it always coming back to you and being something that you're doing it's you that's tripping up absolutely it's it's, it's your fault in a way oh, is there totally, a bit of blame totally there internalized and especially when you add into that dysle- um diabetes and the sort of moralization of that that disease because yeah. you know when i was first diagnosed i'm i was routinely described or you'd hear the phrase you know a good diabetic um somebody who is in control who manages their disease. I remember watching a, um, a documentary about um, teenagers of type one. And there was this doctor who I just, I just want to like punch hard. <laughs> like, not that I advocate violence. <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> <laughs> but 
sometimes needs must. <laughs> or at least, anyway, um, he was saying, um, or she was, I can't remember, but like they were saying that, um, uh, well, we just wanted to um, really get, you know, really make these teenagers understand what what this disease does. Like it's going to leave you on on dialysis if you don't take control. And so they'd made them face to face with somebody who has, you know, got di- got dialysis through their diabetes. I remember sitting in, like, I, when I was diagnosed, because I'd only just turned fifteen, I was um, I was in the kids ward for the first like nine months or something, and then like when I turned sixteen, I was put into the adult ward. And I remember sitting in the um, waiting room and there was a person without um, a leg and there was somebody on dialysis um that shit sticks with you and you will absolutely have teenagers who are trying to reject it and trying to find some kind of control through it but they, that shadow is with you all the time that you know if you don't look after yourself you're going to get dialysis if you don't do this you're going to go blind if you don't do that you're going to lose something if you don't do that you know going back to the pregnancy thing with the PCOS you know if you don't look after yourself you are the bad person rather than what was actually happening which is that essentially for the past 20 years I've been gaslit about the fact that I am trying and it's not working and like with the the yeah the what one of my diseases am I talking about (laughs) the pmdd there we go (laughs) you know it's it's been such a revelation and at the same time i don't know about you but there is a thing that has happened with being like yeah you do have another long-term condition or you have this long-term condition there is no cure for it and the staff can be so nice and so supportive but what have they got really to offer you other than some very draconian medical choices and I know the thing that's going to help me. I know that therapy is the thing that I need constantly. Um, and there is nothing wrong in that. You know, it's, it's an opportunity for me to be able to have perspective because as somebody who can see all these connections, can't necessarily take one thing at a time. And therapy allows me to do that, but it's not available on the NHS unless you're either in crisis and then it's not necessarily great. Or, you know, like my last lot, they extended it to the maximum, which was 20 sessions. And then that's it. I had to wait 18 months to get it. And it's like, right, so what do I have to do now? Go straight back to the beginning. So even though I have a diabetes consultant who I've known for years, I've never had somebody who's for my mental health as a consultant who sees you. You have like a a gynecologist. That's it. But yeah. And it, it says a lot, doesn't it, about, you know, that kind of, you know, the 20, 20 sessions and then either you should be fixed by then or if not, then you just need to fix yourself at that point. Well, it was, um, uh, I mean, my last therapist was fantastic and he was saying that, the, you know, one of the reasons why they do it is because most the NHS in the condition that it is, means that um, they have to prioritise people with short-term um, mental health distress. And, 
you know, so, because most people tend to think of depression um, as a short term thing, um, like maximum a year, you know, if but if you're somebody with long term condition, the the evidence is really hit and miss as to what works. Like, you know, for instance, with um, with actual drug taking. It's fifty-fifty. It's fifty-fifty. If like you know, SSRIs are gonna are gonna help you, and I I really wanted them to help. And they haven't done anything. <laughs> you know? It's just because it's not working on the right part of the brain. And in the same way that the with PMDD, that is in my case. Yeah. In the same way that with PMDD, that you know, the alternative is also to attempt HRT, which is what my my doctors are gently trying to encourage me to do. Um, it's just like, yeah, but I don't want to hijack my system. I hijacked it for a number of years for, you know, being on the pill and stuff. And that, yeah. and that always there's this mention of like, well, it's unlikely that there'll be that many, um, what do you call it, uh, side effects. Um, and each time when you have a side effect, you're then like, oh, well, no, it can't be, it can't be that because <laughs> I've yeah. been on it for months and you know but then you come off it and lo and behold it it disappears like I was on um I was on Yaz or Yasmin um yeah and the pill which which did wonders yeah. for my PCOS mm. um it was was good but like it made me put on a ton of weight now weight itself is never the issue with me it's not the issue of of not loving my body or the size of it or any of that but it's because of the the sort of um, focus on weight being associated with particular other conditions um, and strain that it might put on your organs and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's it means that I'm frightened of it quite unnecessarily, I should add, because like I think there's a, a lot of mis misinformation out there about what actually you know weight gain means to your body um but it's very difficult to sort of say that to yourself when you're standing there looking not like you you know and when i lost this weight from coming off the pill i was shocked because it was like oh this is what my body's meant to look like like it wasn't a thing of like Oh, well, I feel so much healthier now or anything. But it was a, it was a perception thing of actually seeing myself how, like moving in your body, like it's meant to be moved in. And it's very difficult to explain that when you're somebody who also believes that, you know, weight is not the issue. <laughs> That's such a good point. Cause I think like, you know, what you're saying there is you're essentially, you were in a body that had been built by, this kind of institution of medicine, really. Oh my god! It was only when you came off that pill, and you, yeah, you saw you saw what your body should look like. Yeah, and it's, it's it's natural state. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's a really with. I mean, maybe it's the historian mind in me. Um, but like with the diabetes, I've always held on to this thing of like, if it hadn't been. For the invention of insulin in 1921 or two, you know, I would be dead at 15. And that therefore, you know, I am lucky to be here. 
And at the same time, so it means that when like, you're like, oh, this feels like my natural state. There is a part of me that is also like your natural state should be dead, which is, which is PMDD because like that kind of, it's not suicidal ideation, but it is a, an inner voice that is particularly damaging on particular days. Um, and if it's not controlled, so at the moment, the thing with PMDD that I think is um, also not sort of given enough attention to is the fact that if it's if it's left untreated or if you, you know, like any condition, it can have flare ups. So it can last. Usually it will last for two weeks and then the other half of the month I'm all right. But like at the moment for the past couple of months, I think just with 2020 being 2020, <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely been a, a proper depressive episode. So it's, you know. Well, what you said at the start about um, your diabetes, you said it's the most, no, sorry, not your di- diabetes, your dyslexia. It was kind of like, it's the most consistently inconsistent thing ever. <laughs> and actually what you, what when you said that, what came into my head was, and PMDD. Yes. Yeah. Because it's, it is that, oh yes, PMDD, the symptoms will start at ovulation and then go away again on, on day one of your period. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I'm so glad I'm not on my own. Yes. And the trouble with that is as soon as your symptoms maybe carry on for a few days of your period or they're a bit up and down or they just don't quite fit the frame, you start thinking, is it PMDD? Is it just me? And all of a sudden you're back in that circle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one of the things that I'm trying to get to grips with, because I've found it really helpful read. I mean, God, I don't know about you, but I wish we'd learned about this at school. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's disgusting that we weren't. I mean, when you actually think about what, and not to mention the fact that most women or most menstruators don't have periods that last 28 days that's or like you know a, a cycle that lasts 28 days yeah. that's a misnomer and yet we're so it's like oh my god I'm not normal because like mine can last you know 28 or it can last 40 <laughs> it depends yeah. what it's wanting to do that week <laughs> like you know all these things can because because we weren't talk about things like PCOS or endometriosis or all of which are which are so common I don't want to use the word normal because I think, actually, I don't want to normalize PCOS. I don't want to normalize endometriosis. They're painful and they really like impact your life if they're, you know, particularly with PCOS, if it's mixed with other conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we'd been able to be taught about this at school, the, you know, I wouldn't be 37 or is that my 37? I can't remember, but like, in your 30s in my 30s, thirties, yeah <laughs> just being like oh oh this is what's been happening for the past 25 years <laughs> do you know you, you you're so right because i think yeah we we shouldn't normalize these conditions because they are not normal and they are not okay we as people are normal we're not abnormal mm-hmm. for, for having mm-hmm. any any kind of condition nobody is abnormal for that but you shouldn't have to put up with it. You shouldn't have to yes. put up with it alone and think that what you're going through is either A, 
normal or B, it's not normal and therefore you are not normal? Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is when I say that, what I'm referring to is um, the the normalising of um, menstruators having to put up with pain yeah. or put yeah. in, whether that be, you know, physical or mental pain. Um, and I think the you know and it comes back to the treatment that i've had of diabetes which is this idea that it's um and depression which is that the onus is on you to have the solution when in actual fact it's like in the case of diabetes you know my entire existence is artificial i'm being kept alive by a man-made substance which i'm incredibly grateful for but if i didn't have it i wouldn't be here so this is our problem as a society if you're going to keep that person alive what is your answers to making sure that their quality of life is achievable? Because what's the point otherwise? So um, I know that sounds incredibly nihilistic, but like that's PMGT, <laughs> you know, it gives you that frame of mind where you're left with quite brutal questions. It's a truth, isn't it? Because I guess there's, you know, there's medicines that keep people alive, but I guess it's quite a an ethical issue, isn't it? Mm. Of- you know, keeping people alive is, is is one thing, and obviously that's very good to do that. But actually, what about keeping people in a state of well? Absolutely. Or keeping them in a state of unwell? Yeah. Is, isn't, isn't that something that requires more attention, more research, more support with as well? And it's so much of it comes down to listening, like actively listening, because all too long, you know, it's been, the onus has been on, you know, apparently we're not articulating ourselves clear enough to medical professionals. Now that's just utter bullshit. Like, you know, the, and it, it, it takes lives, you know, when you look at the sort of statistics around black women giving birth and they're five times more likely to, to have a stillbirth or for something or for a woman to die in pregnancy. Like this is lives that we are talking about. So it needs to, it needs to be more than simply going, well, yeah, that sounds nice. Let's, yeah, we'll listen to the women because they quite like that, you know, Black Lives Matter. But it's like, no, they do. Like, if you say... But they really do. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah, it's lip service, isn't there. it, a lot of the time? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, like, the thing is, it makes you a poorer institution because of it. You're actually not claim. you're not doing what you're claiming, which is trying to support women's health. If you're not understanding what you you know you're not taking a holistic approach to all women and you're not listening to what they're saying so when a woman says she is in pain she means it because (laughs) we're tough motherfuckers (laughs) i mean you wouldn't make it up anyway would you i mean if you're gonna make something up you're not gonna make up that you've got like pmdd or you're not gonna make up that you struggle with reading why would you you? why would anyone do that yeah listen to people yeah like absolutely i mean it's, it's that with dyslexia is this notion that it's just like oh you're just you're, you're just being a bit lazy and like or um what's you know or when i've had um hypos and uh when they first described um having a hypo they were like well she may become irritable she may um be forgetful she may be all of these like things that sound pretty negative and, you know, the joke was, well, how are you meant to know the difference of a teenage girl? And it's just like, well, because the teenager is not the condition and actually get to know the person, you know, just just putting it out there. 
all about the labels, isn't it? And you know what? I think diagnoses can be, you know, so important and so helpful on one point, but then on the other point, it's kind of like, often they don't really change much. They don't change a medical practitioner's approach. Yes. Especially with things like mental health and PMDD. They just, it's all one thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's such a good point. Because like, yeah, the the issue is that you find yourself be, being given this diagnosis and then it's essentially up to you. And if you reject what is being offered, there is always this feeling of like, why are you going it alone? And, you know, if it goes wrong, it's your fault. Always your fault. Always, <laughs> always comes back always. to you. I mean, that's the one thing you can guarantee with somebody with PMDD. We know who to blame and it's us. <laughs> and it's us every time. <laughs> For everything. For everything. Everything, absolutely. Like, my, my dad's always had the phrase that, like, uh, with, like what goes on his gravestone is, I knew it would be my fault. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm with him. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That is PMDD psychology right there. Oh my God, it really is. I wonder if, if your dad has PMDD No. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, oh he doesn't. But no, I, didn't, I didn't think so. It's, what's interesting though is that um, I had... Uh, I had chats with my nan before um, she passed away this year and, um, you know, she she always spoke to me about her health in a way that she didn't with anyone else because like, I'm so bloody open about it. But you can't not be. When you have these conditions, you cannot mm-hmm. be. It's how your entire existence is. Anyway, um, and looking back, it's like, mm, nan, like... <laughs> She she definitely had sort of um she experienced mental distress and it would come out in in ways that you would expect of a woman of her generation um and I think you know there is a lot of uh, I think a lot of people of um of older generations tend to look at mental health as um well they've got by they've got by by doing particular actions and that therefore like why would you need the label why do you need this description i never got that from nan she she struggled to sort of she was like don't call me if you're feeling low because i won't be able to help and actually i can't tell you how much i appreciated that because it was somebody putting their boundary out and saying yeah. i am not the person for you at that time and call me when something great happens and you're feeling okay. And like when people are that explicit, it actually makes it so much easier to divorce from, you know, people who sort of say that they will be supportive, but they don't know what to do. Yes, because then when people say they're going to be supportive and then maybe they're, they're not, or, or like you say, they can't handle it. The one thing that will make us do every single time Let's blame ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, we should it. never have talked to them in the first place, even though they gave us that permission. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's just, what's the phrase about over-promising and under-delivering? Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't, just don't, just don't. Like, oh. under-promise, over-deliver. Over-deliver. Every time. That's, yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an attitude towards life, I think, that like, yeah, definitely. We, un- Every time. we underestimate. <laughs> Yes, just do that and you'll always get by. Um, What do you want people to know? If there was one message that you could put out today to, it could be, you know, your family, your friends or like the world, what would you just want them to know about 
you and, and what we've talked about today? Um, I would say uh, disability is not a dirty word. Um, we uh, need to reassess our attitude towards disability and how we identify with it. It's not something there that's for um, patronising people. It's not something there that is, ironically, a crutch, shall we say. Um, it's something there that can empower people, um, particularly if you have a number of conditions that on the surface people say, well, that's livable, that's manageable. But, okay, so after rambling, I think my my takeaway would be um, please look at the intersections. The intersection is where it matters um, because no one is just one condition. Um, your condition fluctuates according to your environment, according to who you live with, according to your body, according to everything. Um, so, yeah, intersectionality matters, I guess. <laughs> Love that. What's yours? What would you... Oh. What do I want the world to know? Oh. Oh. I feel like we're going to have to edit this now because I'm pausing so much. <laughs> what do I want the world to know? What do I want the world to know about me? <laughs> do you know what? I, I think I want the world to know that I find it incredibly hard. And I don't always say that. I'm very good at talking about PMDD. I'm good at talking to other people about their, their experiences. But ironically, as soon as they ask me, <laughs> I clam up and I can talk about my experiences after they've happened. So I can definitely say to my friends, I've had a bad few days, but I would never mm. message them when I'm in that spiral and say, girls, I'm struggling. I think, mm. yeah, that's the thing about me. I'm, I, I can talk about it all day long. I can ask the questions. I can say all the right things. Yeah. But as soon as it comes to the, uh, that kind of very personal level, I find it really hard. And and that's not because I don't want to talk about it. Mm. It's just it's a just, that comes over. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, it, well, I mean, you can you can tell I can't do it. Do you, well, I mean, at the same time, that is doing it, isn't it? I think that's the thing. We We overestimate the power of words and underestimate body language and silence. Um, and silence tells you a hell of a lot. Um, and I think, you know, it, in fact, I think it is Invisibility Disability Day. <laughs> so um, what a time to be talking about it. Oh but gosh, invisible illnesses are, are only invisible if you're not listening. Because if you're living with an invisible illness, they are so visible. <laughs> Your entire life is, is perceived through the lens of that condition. Um, so yeah, I completely understand the silence and it's not just the silence of like, <sighs> I think there's also within that, I'll come back to the intersectionality thing is the fact that how we were brought up as girls, um, to perceive, you know, talking about mental distress as weakness. I mean, boys have that too, of course. Um, but I, I don't know about you, but like, Growing up, there was a sense that, you know, women who talk about those things are flighty, are emotional, are too much. You are never too much. They're just not enough. Like, it's, 
it's not your problem. <laughs> and like, I love that. But it's the thing is, is that that's it. You know, I can talk in all these kind of fantastic, what do you call it, speech bubbles. But as you say, the reality is, you know, on Monday I was in tears mm. and unable to get out of bed. I could barely get out of bed today. I don't sound like that. I sound like somebody who's chipper and like can look to the world and be enthusiastic because I am, I am naturally an enthusiastic person, but these conditions mean that I spend a lot of my life in bed, a lot of my life not having energy, a lot of my life not being able to articulate myself. And so actually what you need is people to understand that silence and not just understand it, but listen to it, listen to that silence. You know, if your friend isn't getting in contact with you, there might be a reason. Don't say, how are you? Just say, I'm thinking of you. I'm here if you need me. Because I think, how are you? I don't know about you, but it shuts me down because it's like, I'm going to have to say something negative because I'm a girl and I can't say something negative because then I'm just Miss Negativity. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. There's definitely, isn't there? I, I always feel like, oh, I'm such a like, what's the word? Moaning. 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 That's the one, Moaning Myrtle or Debbie Downer. Debbie that's Downer, the that's the other Debbie Downer. And I don't want to be that person. Yeah, we need a, we need a male one. <laughs> yeah, why isn't there a male yeah, one? Yeah, it's Moaning Myrtle yeah. and Debbie Downer. It's so true. And I'm pretty yeah. sure there's a Little Miss one, isn't there? There's a Little Miss Grumpy. Oh, no, what actually, was there a Mr. Grumpy? So who knew yeah. the Mr. and Mrs. books did it right? <laughs> he got it right all them years ago. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. Um, so as we as we wrap up this episode, then if you were to go back to your your 16, 15, 16 year old self when you'd first been diagnosed with your diabetes, you know that mm. that was the first one that you mentioned before. <laughs> What advice would you give to yourself when you were, you know, maybe in the hospital seeing people walking around with with, with only one leg? Hmm. What hmm. kind of advice would you give to yourself back then? I've been thinking about that. Um, and I've decided I don't think I would give myself advice um, because actually I think the the kid was untarnished by the institutionalization that has happened over the past 20 years. And she was wiser than me about not taking fools gladly. Um, and, you know, being happy to be who she was. And over the years, it's like layer upon layer of trauma has happened. So I think what I would actually just say is I'm here for you and I hear you. You know, it's it's not about advice. It's that I see you and I see the struggle that you've gone through and I believe you. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say to her. Well, I love that. Thank you very much for that. There's so much work to be done to better support people who have health and hormone issues, but there's also so much support out there. As always, I encourage everyone to reach out for support, to talk more and have those difficult conversations. But also today, I'm saying take the time to listen as well, especially to the people who are the quietest. On my next episode, I'll be joined by Nicole, who's going to be sharing what life is like as a young person with PMDD. 
Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends, leave a review and subscribe to hear future episodes. You can get in touch by following My Hormones, My Health on Instagram or emailing me at hormonesandhealth at outlook.com. <laughs>